So my name's Steph. I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to be here. I was away last week. I was in Lowestoft last Sunday with Levi. Me and Levi went to Lowestoft, which is the easterly, most easterly part of the country. You go any further and you get wet. And um, <clears throat> we've got a relational mission uh, church up there, church that's part of our family of churches. So I had the joy of being able to go up there and uh, um, with Levi and just share from God's word and encourage the guys there. And we had a really good time together. But it's always very, very uh, special and precious to come back and worship uh, at, at your home church. You know, there's nothing like it. It's so great to be with you guys. I will be <clears throat> to in and fro in a bit over this term, um, but it's always a joy to, to be here on Sundays gathering together. So we are in uh, this series um, called Worship and War, where we, we will be tracking the life of David, but perhaps not as conventionally as normal in the sense that what we're going to do, we're going to use the series to preach through certain psalms that he wrote at certain points in his life. So really it's a series in the Psalms. Um, If you read through in the Bible the Psalms, you'll find that some of them at the top have a little description which says something like, David wrote this when dot dot dot. So you can then reference back to the particular point of the story, either in the book of 1 Samuel or 2 Samuel. You can reference back and you can work out and you can read what was happening. So, So that's what we'll be doing through this sermon. We called it Worship and War because if you were to sum up really the two main themes, I guess of David's life, but also the book of Psalms, it's those two things. It's worship, it's passionate love for God, it's poured out heart, it's affection, expressive, demonstrative passion for God, gratitude, um, but it's also battle. It's desperate, it's heartfelt, it's, it's, it's the depths, it's opposition. Those are really the, probably the two main things that come through in the Psalms. So we're going to use that as a framework um, while we look at this series. It's important, we said uh, uh, the last couple of weeks, the fact that number one, we are all worshippers, whether we would call ourselves a believer, a Christian or any other religion, or whether we would say, no, I'm, a se- I- I'm secular, I don't believe in anything. Actually, the Bible teaches that we are all worshippers. We all have perhaps one or, or two or three things in our lives that really have our heart, that really captures us, that that we think about when we're not thinking about anything, that takes up our time, our resources, our energy. That is our worship. And moments like today where we come and sing, it's kind of like a a focused expression of that, but it goes on 24-7 as was hinted at in some of the things that were said. And so it's vitally important that we think about worship because it's massively relevant. In fact, I would say it is the most relevant thing for every single one of us in the room to be able to identify what really is the object of my worship because that will determine everything about your life. It's massive. And the second thing is warfare, the reality that as Christians we are in a war. Now it's a spiritual war. The Bible says our, our battle is not against people. Okay, We're not against certain people that's not where our warfare is but where our warfare is is against the unseen spiritual powers that operate behind the scenes and influence people's lives and are set against the glory of God set against light life righteousness bent on destruction our warfare is against those powers it's real In fact, you could say it's more real than warfare against people because the Bible says what is seen is temporary, what is unseen is eternal. So it's real. So we've got to get to grips with this and learn how to wage a good warfare as Christians that we might see the victory of Jesus and all that he brings. Light, life, truth, liberty, holiness. 
mercy, joy, that he might bring that into people's lives. Amen. That's what we're about. So, we're going to be looking at Psalm 59 today. So if you'd like to turn to that, I'm going to read it to you in just a moment. Well, we can read it together in just a moment. But it's probably helpful when we do this to just keep you up to speed with the story in case you're not familiar with the story of David. So kind of where we're up to. Where we're at the moment is this, is at this point in the story, David has defeated the giant Goliath. And um, the current king, Saul, initially was very happy about this because it took a, a weight off his mind. Um, but then people started singing this song, and the song went a little bit like this. I don't know what the tune was, so I'm going to just say it. Saul has killed his thousands, David his tens of thousands. Okay? So, so the people start, this song's going around. Saul has killed his thousands, David his tens of thousands. And for a warrior king, that was not good for Saul to hear. And it began to eat into him. It began to arouse in him uh, envy, uh, bitterness. And really he sets his heart to destroy in David because David is a threat to him. Now we know behind the scenes, we know from the last couple of weeks that spiritually speaking, the spirit, the anointing of God has left Saul and now rests on David. So there's a reason why this, this favour, this power um, comes and associates with David because the anointing of the spirit is now on him. The spirit has left Saul. Now, now, if Saul were to be a godly man in this, in this situation, he should recognise what's happened. Repent of the sins that caused the Spirit of God to leave him. And ask God that he might be of some use in the purposes of God for the years that he's got left. Wouldn't that be amazing? Instead, he becomes hell-bent on destroying David and fighting for his own prestige, fighting for his own reputation, fighting for his own sense of self-worth and value and all of that. And it's ugly. It's really ugly. And it gets really complicated because Saul's son, Jonathan... Is absolutely mad about David. He loves David. He just thinks David, and he even recognises, he even says to David, I can see that you've been anointed as king. He can see the spirits on him. I mean, it, this, is, this is really awkward, and it gets even more awkward, because uh, Saul, when he was troubled by Goliath, made as part of his promise, whoever kills this giant can have one of my daughters in marriage. Um, and so by this point, David is also married to one of Saul's daughters. This is tricky. This is, not, this is not straightforward anymore. And so you've got, you've got family loyalties. You've got, you've got tension, difficulty. It's murderous. And I, I would just sort of say this, that bitterness, envy, self-pity, if not attended to, can tear families and churches apart. If you don't, the Bible says that if you let a root of bitterness grow up, it poisons the whole thing. If you don't deal with stuff in your heart that, that, that is dark like that, self-pity is powerful. People don't often think of it as a sin. I tell you, self-pity is a nasty sin. Because you, you just get caught up with yourself. Bitterness, envy, doesn't deal with it. And as a result, there's, uh, the, the family is getting torn apart. Wouldn't it have been amazing if Saul had said, you know what, God's hand is on David, I'm going to rejoice with him. Imagine that. I, I recognise God's hand is on you. You actually, you actually can do a much better job than me. I'm going to rejoice with you. I mean, how, what, how, I mean, Saul's story, how would it have ended? It would have been large and rich and joyful. and he would have rejo- I mean, it would have been magnificent. Instead, the end, of, the end of Saul's story is a tragic one. He goes to visit a witch and, I mean, it's a medium and it just goes really, really, really dark. Because he gets embroiled in himself. Let me just 
say this as well as part of the introduction really that learning to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep is ever so important as a church because what happens is the bigger a church gets the more at the same time really bad things and really good things happen for different people someone gets the dream job at the same time someone loses theirs that's really hard and, and, and it's incumbent upon us as God's people who are looking to be filled with the Holy Spirit for the person who got the dream job, if they are aware of that situation over there or if they know that person, to find a way of weeping with them. And not just thinking, oh, this is awkward, I better just kind of stay away. And for this person over here who has found themselves left high and dry, to be able to find a way in God to extend themselves to that person and rejoice with them. That's supernatural. That's, you, can't, you can't just dig that out of yourself. That's a Holy Spirit thing. And then family situations, you know, you, maybe you've longed to have children and, 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 and not been able to and you're, you're thinking, it doesn't look like it's going to happen. And then someone else in your circle in church gives birth and just walk in these things well. I tell you, we've gotta, we've gotta, we need constant grace from God so that we don't just isolate ourselves or fall into envy. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's real, isn't it? It's real. We need to keep looking to the Lord, building relationships, finding our way through. I think, I think that as a church, let me just commend you. I think that there's a, such evidence of God's grace to make us that we are bigger than ourselves. So, much, so many amazing things go on behind the scenes. I want to just commend you for that. But let's keep watchful in it. Um, before we get into the psalm, couple of comments on warfare just quickly there's different kinds of warfare there's anyone know what a war of attrition is a war of attrition is a little bit like world war one where basically what happens is is you just get to a point where you know you don't really know whether and no one can do anything significant and you just stand there and try and wear each other down and the first one to lose heart really or the first one to have no one left and you just wear you just wear it down and so there was a time in during world war one where that really the, the front line didn't really change for a very long period of time and they would just blast each other every day and maybe make a few feet here or a few yards there. It's a war of attrition. You're just wearing each other down until someone says, I can't take it anymore. Sometimes in Christian warfare, it's a war of attrition. There's no big thing you can point to, but you know what? You just get to the point you go, I'm exhausted. I'm exhausted praying. I'm exhausted holding on, trusting God for that. I'm exhausted. That's, it, it, there can be an attritional you have to be aware of that. Sometimes you just go, oh dear. Whew. And you can feel stupid because you can't point to any big thing, but you just know that you've just been holding the line in faith or something for a long time. Or you've just taken a few hits, things you thought God was going to do, prayers you thought he was going to answer, and he didn't, and you can, whew, you know. That's real, and it matters, okay? That's not to be dismissed. And then there's other warfare, which you might describe as a, as a sniper's bullet, where you're walking down the street and everything seems fine, and then suddenly you think, where did that come from? Sometimes it's like that. You think, gosh, I thought, you know, someone asked me two days ago how things were going. I said, they're going great. And now you ask me today and it's a different story. Because I just didn't see it coming. Now that's not to scare people. It's just to say there's a reality to these things. And as we delve into these Psalms, we'll begin to get into the texture of the reality of hardship and how to deal with it and how to hold the line and how to learn how to weep and mourn well, but with hope still. We've got to learn these things. Otherwise, we'll become unreal. We don't want to be an unreal community. Now, just to say, David spent about seven years on the run from Saul. That's attritional. <laughs> it can wear you down. Seven years of being persecuted. Um, 
And what we've seen is, is that in these Psalms that David let God do in him what he was doing in him as a result. And as a result, some of the richest, most wonderful Psalms we have thousands of years later are being sung in the church and preached about. If you let God do in you what he is doing with you in a season, riches and depths will come out of you that never would have come out of you. And sometimes God in rescuing us from being superficial will let us go through some stuff that draws out the depths of what he's doing in us and it rescues us and rescues a load of people around us. Okay, God's ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Amen? Amen. Psalm 59. Let's read this psalm together. So in this story, right now what's happened is, is, that, is that Saul has said, right, we're just going to kill him. Okay? We're not, we're not, first of all, we tried to kill him a few south ways. We're just going to kill him now. So he sends them, some men around to David's uh, house where he's married to Michal, Saul's daughter, and he says, just go and kill him. And, 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 and um, word gets to Michal and she says to David, this is what they're going to do. And so, and so David says, let me out of the window because I can basically hear their footsteps. So he climbs out the window at night and she sets up the household idol. Don't ask me. She sets up the household idol in the bed, puts the cover over it in a wig. And um, it's one of those ones. Um, you know, he's, poor, he's poorly. He's a bit ill. So the messengers go back to Saul and say he's poorly. You know, so, you know, we, we didn't get the access that we wanted. She, you know, she, she sort of let us maybe look through a crack in the door or something like that. Saul said, you know what? Go down there. Get his bed. Carry him up to me in his bed. I'm going to kill him. So they go back. And then they go and, sh- and, and they go in and they, and they you know, pull the duvet off. You know, it's classic. You know, oh, you know okay, he's not, he's not here. David writes the psalm around this time. This has just happened. So let's read together Psalm 59. He's being watched, but he's watching for God. Okay, deliver me. Let's read together. Deliver me from my enemies, oh my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me. For no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord. For no fault of mine, they run and make ready. Awake, come to meet me and see. You, Lord, God of hosts, are God of Israel. Rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. Each evening they come back, howling like dogs and prowling about the city. There they are, bellowing with their mouths, with swords in their lips, for who they think will hear us. But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. O my strength, I will watch for you. For you, O God, are my fortress. My God, in his steadfast love, will meet me. God will let me look in triumph on my enemies. Kill them not, lest my people forget. Make them totter by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. For the sin of their mouths, the words of their lips, let them be trapped in their pride. For the cursing and lies that they utter, consume them in wrath. Consume them till they are no more, that they may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. Selah. Each evening they come back, howling like dogs and prowling about the city. 
They wander about for food and growl if they do not get their fill. But I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. O my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, O God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that as we just let it loose now, that it would do incredible things in our lives. We ask that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So we're going to work through this, um, not word for word, but we'll take it in chunks. So if you could maybe, um, precious, have the first bit up, that would be great. Thank you so much. So very often what you find is this. People say things like, you know, with the Psalms, um, always starts in praise. And then in the end, David will start praying for things that he gets to. Actually, not always. This is the other way around. Starts with prayer. At the end, he's praising. It starts with prayer. And uh, you know, there's not a formula to praying. Jesus gave us the Lord's Prayer, so I think it's really wise if you're going out for a prayer time to use that as a framework. But there's a whole load of other praying that goes on in a Christian's life, right? Just as you're going to and fro, or particularly you meet for someone to pray with them, or who knows what. There's all different times and ways of praying, and we mustn't get formulaic. Because the moment you get formulaic, what can happen is is there's a heart disconnect. And you're saying things, and you're here. You you ever been in that moment where you hear yourself saying things? (laughs) It's frightening. You hear yourself praying things, and then suddenly you're you're watching yourself praying and thinking, where's that coming from? We need to get a lot of help from the Lord to help us from becoming formulaic and professional in that negative sense, you know? But that whereby we're able to draw near in our heart, the Bible says. There's times in the Bible where God says, you know what, they, they praise me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. We never want to be those people. But that we draw near in our heart. And when we pray, we pray the things that are really in our heart. And even if it takes some time, you know, to just think about what I want to say, and we don't just rush in. You know, there's places in the Bible where it says, let your words be few. Sometimes it's right to just wait and say, Lord, I just want to phrase this right. I want to just, what's in my heart and say it. That's good. And then there's times like this where who knows, maybe David was hiding behind a bill. He just jumped out the window, who knows. And he's, you know, he's thinking back to that moment where he's penning the psalm. He's thinking back to what it was like. And it was just this desperation. I mean, look at some of the words he cries out to God. Deliver, protect Behold, which means, Lord, look, look what's going on. He says, awake. He says, rouse yourself. What great bold words to use in prayer. Rouse yourself, oh God. He's looking for God to act. He's looking for, you see, God is the living God, so he's expecting God to act. That's why you get these words, prayer and watchfulness, come together a lot. Because you pray and you expect God, I'm expecting you to do something. Awake. He's not being irreverent. He's not being disrespectful, but he's saying, Lord, I need you to wake up to what's going on in my situation. I need to see your hand moving, Lord. Lord, you are are not a God who sleeps, Lord. Wake up. It's earnest. It's heartfelt. It's real. It's real. It's not just pleasant words. It's not just niceties. It's real engagement. I love these words that he says here. Verse 4. Awake. Come to meet me. Come to meet me. Isn't that the heart of every true prayer? Come to meet me. Lord, if you would come and meet me in this, I know that it would be, I know that one way or another it's going to be okay. 
I want to know your presence. I want to know you. I want to know your nearness. I want to know the reality of your fellowship in this. Lord, I don't want to be by myself in this. And even when we have others around us, there's, there, and, and how, what a gift that is. There's nothing like knowing his very presence in a situation. God, come and meet me. And so we look at these first few verses and what we see is honesty. What we see is authenticity. We see reality. We see a sense of someone who's expecting, expecting much from God. You know, I think sometimes we, we don't expect enough of God. I don't think that glorifies him. It's always sad as a parent when you, your kids don't expect much of you. <laughs> it is. It's always a bit, you always think, oh, <laughs> you know. Oh, you probably, you probably don't want to get me that, Dad. Like, oh, what have you seen in me? Do you know what I mean? Maybe I was a bit grumpy and tight last week, you know. And you go, oh, Dad, you know. You think, oh, no. Even, even when you have to say no to requests from your children because, you know, it's simply unreasonable. Um, it's nice to know that they will come and say, can we, can you? So you feel, hey, you're expecting something of me. You're expecting that I can do it. That's nice. And that it's in my heart to do it. When we come to God and we say, God, deliver, rouse yourself, wake up, meet me. We're saying, Lord, we believe you've got in you to do this. We be- and we believe it's in your heart to meet us. That's a wonderful thing. That glorifies God. We're expecting him to be alert to our cry and nearby. Why? Because we believe he's compassionate. That glorifies God when we believe he's compassionate. We expect him to be powerful. That glorifies him. And so we can learn so many lessons here from David. But he's in the middle of it and he's looking to God. He's looking to the Lord. And then we get these verses, these slightly frightening verses that come. In verses 6 and 7. And they're kind of repeated in verses 14 and 15. It says, each evening they come back howling like dogs. And then it says here, uh, uh, and prowling about the city. There they are bellowing with their mouths. That word can also have been belching. And basically the idea is, is, that, is that they're gushing forth. They're gushing forth noise and threats and just nastiness. They're like dogs. And then, and then he says it again. Verse, verse 14. Sorry, any dog lovers. Verse 14. I should have remembered I was uh, close near to Hampstead. But um, verse 14. Each evening they come back howling like dogs and prowling about the city. They wander about for food and growl if they don't get their fill. Is this kind of murderous idea. Now you've got to understand here. If you go to certain parts of the world, in a certain, even today, their dogs aren't like our dogs. Right? We're not talking about a labradoodle called Cutie Pops or a red setter called Roger. You know, I mean, I've literally been on the heath before and I heard someone going, Roger! And I thought, what? And they lost their dog. I mean, get, get that out of your head, all right? We're not in North London, we're not in Hampstead here, okay? I visited someone from Rev who's planting a church elsewhere in another part of the world with someone from Rev a few months ago and we went for a jog and there wasn't a pack but there was a couple of wild dogs. And I tell you when you run past them you, you're watching everything about your body language. You don't want to appear threatening but neither do you want to appear scared. You're trying to gauge how much eye contact to give them enough to make them know that you're not a walkover but not too much to make them think you want to fight. Okay, you've got to get this straight, okay? David's in a situation where he says, they're, they're prowling around my life like dogs. They're th- they're, there's threat. I am facing real threat here. You see, David's life was not a comfortable life for much of it. 
Later on, it became much more comfortable. But for this period of his life, it was anything but comfortable. And our lives, compared to many, many people's lives in the world, are actually immensely comfortable. And, and, and we're not, many of us are not really battle-hardened. Many of us are not really used to um, significant difficulty. And we find ourselves actually, compared to a lot of people in the world, actually quite fragile. It's the honest truth. Compared to many people in the world. Easily traumatised. Now, trauma is never something you go looking for. I don't hear what I'm not saying. But we do need the Lord to help us to toughen up. Otherwise, we just will not deal with hardship when it comes. We'll crumble. Okay, this is a hard situation. People are after his life. He's persecuted. He has not got a persecution complex. Far from it. He's a very humble man. But he's persecuted now. People are after his life. And what is he doing? He's turning to God. He's turning to God. And, you know, I think it's a massive challenge for all of us. Where do we go when it gets really tough? Where do we turn? Where do we turn? Let's look at the life of Jesus for just a moment. Jesus really gives us such a beautiful model here. Hounded. Hounded. Persecuted. Hated. On the run. A fair bit of the time. Not able to go to certain parts of Israel because of what would happen. People picking up stones and trying to kill him in the temple. This was people taking him to the edge of a cliff to try and push him off. This is all in, 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 a, in a time span of three years. This is intense. This is hard. This is very, very difficult. And yet such serenity, such peace. I don't know what to say because I'm as, I'm as Western as 95% of you are in the room. And I'm aware of the ease of our life compared to many parts of the world. And the more I travel, the more I see it. And you go, oh Lord... And God is kind and God is merciful. And God knows that sometimes we struggle with things that someone else in another part of the world would have no idea why we're struggling. And would frankly find it mysterious and befuddling to look at us in the state that we're in. But you know what? God is compassionate. God understands and God knows. And he knows what we've come through and he searches our hearts. So there is grace for us in it. But the reality is this. There will come times when even if to someone else's eyes it doesn't look that bad, you feel that you are being surrounded by wild dogs. Surrounded by wild dogs, belching out threats, looking to eat and feast themselves upon you. In both of these instances, look what comes next. After verse 7, start of verse 8, but you, O Lord. After verse 15, but I will sing of your strength. There's this but. And for the believer, there's always this but. Yeah, it's hard. Man, I'm pressed in. Wow, it's tight. It's a narrow spot. But God. But God. But God knows. But God cares. But God is able. And this is a huge thing for us to understand and engage with. But I will sing of your strength. What a wonderful resolve. I will sing of your strength. I am currently weak in what I'm going through. But I will sing of your strength. We see this journey that David goes on. You see, for, for King Saul, the Bible says that he was physically head and shoulders above everyone in the nation. A very impressive man. He could have beaten anyone pretty much in a fight. Let's imagine he was seven foot tall. Impressive. But then Goliath comes along who's ten foot tall. And this speaks of the fact that no matter how resourceful we are naturally, things will come our way that we can't meet. What then? Your head and shoulders does nothing for you. I tell you what then, you need a David to come in whose eyes are fixed on God. 
who just feels, changes the whole atmosphere with his, the fact that he is someone who, is, who brings with him the presence of God by his faith. He says, well, isn't there a God in Israel? And everyone's like, oh, yeah. We were looking to Saul. Saul, you're our king and you're amazing. But now this man said, we've got nowhere to go. Someone comes in and says, isn't there a God in Israel? You see, Jesus brings exactly the same atmosphere with him. He's the good shepherd. He comes in and says, I'm, I am here. With you, I am Emmanuel, God with us. God with you, I am here. But God, that's the journey that God takes us on through these Psalms. Verses 8 to 13 are, I think, slightly awkward perhaps for us because here David begins to pray for judgment on his enemies. So I want to go somewhere with this. That I feel is biblical and right, but it's, you're going to have to just follow me with it because it's not easy. He begins, to, he begins to declare that God is just laughing at his enemies. God is so great and so above them. And then he begins to pray for their judgment. He says, don't kill them straight away. Instead, make them totter. <laughs> make them wander. Bring them, bring them to an end that shows, just shows their blasphemy for what it is and where it goes. It's a very fascinating thing. He says, my God, do not kill, verse 11, kill them not. Don't just, don't just snuff them out because people will forget what happened. Make them, show them the error of their ways. Make them wander around, tottering as a result of their blasphemy that the people will see. That's where it goes. That's where it goes when you embrace darkness and murderousness in your heart. That's where it goes when you, when you, when you follow the path of godlessness. That's where it is. And you see, David here, what, what, what he does, and throughout the Bible, what we find is that there is this radical pray for your enemies, which Jesus teaches us. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who persecute you. Do not take revenge. Okay? So when, when hardship comes against you and people are around you, you're to pray. You're to pray, Lord, bless. You're to pray, Lord, like Jesus said on the cross, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Lord, turn their hearts. You ought to do that. But then also there's been this first that I've been aware of for a couple of decades now that's always stuck with me and it's in Revelation. And it's the cry of martyrs. It's this prayer of martyrs. So they're in heaven, they're glorified. They're, they're no longer got indwelling sin in them. And they cry out, Revelation 6 verse 10. They say, how long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood? How long, O Lord, until you deal with those who took our lives? And there's this strange thing where as, as believers, we live in an age of grace. We live in an age where we're looking for all people to be saved. We're looking, we live in an age where we're so aware, aren't we, of the forgiveness God has given us in Jesus. We want everyone to experience that. And yet also the reality is, is that it's totally appropriate that for those who don't repent of their sins, those who harbour darkness inside and refuse to let go of it and refuse to turn away from it to the light, God will judge. And again, I think it's something we find hard because the level of our suffering in our part of the world is quite minimal compared to many parts of the world. But like someone said to me once before, if someone entered your village and raped your wife and chopped your kids up, Maybe you'd understand this a bit more. And in that moment you go quiet and you go, yeah, maybe I need to learn some things. You see, the Bible says, do not take revenge. But then what does it say? Romans 12. Leave room for what? Anyone know? The wrath of God. Leave room for the wrath of God. And you know, I want to put it to you that if you do not have a God who will bring judgment finally 
to all those who do not repent. If you don't have that God, you will struggle to forgive. Because a massive part of forgiving is knowing that you are saying, Lord, I'm going to put them in your hands. And I want you to bring them to repentance, Lord. That's my prayer for them. But if they won't repent, Lord, I am going to leave room for you to deal with them as you see right. When you have that God, you can forgive. To, to forgive means that you release up. You, you, you say, I'm no longer going to do the re- revenge. I'm no longer going to try and punish you. I'm not doing that. I'm going to give you over to the Lord. And my hope is, is that the Lord will show mercy on you and, and, and change your life. And, and there can be reconciliation and all of that. But if that doesn't happen, I'm going to leave the Lord to deal with you. You know, when you do that in a robust way, you no longer have to spend time daydreaming about what you're going to do to that person. You've given them to the Lord. He knows what to do. You no longer have to make digs and do things or passive aggressive. You haven't got to do any of that. You know that now they're in the Lord's hands. And God knows what he's doing. Amen. This is powerful. David says, Lord, deal with them. Deal with them. It's a massive part of David being able to be kept from bitterness. I mean, seven years of a man hunting you down and you've done nothing wrong. And you, and you have opportunities to kill him. In fact, people around you are saying, look, God has given you an opportunity to kill him. This, isn't just, this, is, this is providential. Look, God's brought him into the cave. I mean, what are the odds? God's brought him into this cave to go to the toilet. And it's the very cave that we're hiding in. That's what happens. And they say to David, it's God. And so David just cuts a little bit off of his robe. And then David's conscience is struck by that. And he has to go out and say, look, I feel really bad about this. I'll cut your robe. It's a crazy story. And Saul's like, what are, you, what are you doing? And Saul says, you're more righteous than I. And David, his heart is kept from, from this kind of creeping bitterness. He's kept from it. Why? Because his view of God is so awesome. He trusts, he knows he's the recipient of the grace of God. And so he wants God to be gracious to Saul. But if, 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 if Saul won't receive that in his heart, then well, then Lord, just do what you've got to do. And he can, as a result, he can run his race. The Bible says, throw off the sin that clings so closely and anything else that hinders you. And so many things can try to get onto us and it just slows us down. You think, I'm not running like I used to be running. I'm bogged down with that anxiety and I'm hit up about that injustice. Listen, these things are real and these things matter. You can't just bat them away. But what you can do is learn in God to bring them to the throne and say, God, you've got to deal with this. I'm going to leave my cause with you. I tell you what, either you trust him like for it, either he's trustworthy or he isn't. And I want to put it to you. There he is. We are to love our enemies. We are to love our enemies. Absolutely. And that is no small thing. That is absolutely massive. In fact, I would say that, that is the thing that really probably marks out Christians. I think plenty of people are, love their friends. Plenty of people love their family. It's normal. <laughs> Plenty of people are kind to other people. It's normal. Sometimes there are people who are just really nice to all kinds of people they don't even know without the Holy Spirit. Loving your enemies, that's, you've gone somewhere there which is just like, how, what? How? It's the Holy Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. And you know, sometimes you struggle with people. You don't even know why. You just think, I just, I just, you, you bother me. bother me I just don't like the way you are it just gets under my skin okay what are you going to do with that because everyone has that what are you going to do with that 
Because the Holy Spirit wants to empower you to be able to do something with that that is really quite extraordinary. It's more than tolerating. It's extending. Agape, love, showing love. It's supernatural we're talking about stuff here, guys. I'm just, anyone can get up and say, well, be, ni- be, nice, be nicer. Be nicer. They have the atheist church now, don't they, where they have gatherings like this. I, think, I don't know what they sing, maybe some Beatles songs or something. And if someone will get up, they do. They really do. They really, you've not read about it. They really do. The atheist church. They, they've looked at all the positive side effects of churches, but they don't want anything to do with God. So they've create a, they create a church meeting. And someone will get up at some point and, and they'll motivate people and they'll, and they'll say things that are motivational and inspiring. Okay? We can do that. We could do that. This is not what, maybe there's some, I hope there's some motivation and inspiration. But this, no, no, this is the gospel. This is the power of the Holy Spirit where we say, Lord, we, I have not got the resources in myself to live this way. I can't do it. Anyone relate to that? It's beyond me. Tom says, yes, we yawn. It's beyond me. Yeah, tell me something new. I tell you, we, we, are, we are not here to be, we are not here to just gather more and more people to this gathering on a Sunday so we can sing songs together. It's great to gather and do this. It's wonderful. It honors and glorifies God. But the main thing is to equip, is to come here to be equipped and filled with the Holy Spirit for what happens after this meeting. Amen? That's the big deal. That's the really big deal. And I tell you, you cannot make a dent in what is going on in our world without the Holy Spirit. You can't. There is a thick darkness over the nations. Only the light of Jesus can break through that. And the way God has determined the light of Jesus will break through that is that he will fill us with the presence of Jesus by the Holy Spirit and break through things in that way. And so it's such an imperative on us to be filled with the Holy Spirit that we might learn to overcome in these ways that we are looking at. I want to end now with the final couple of verses. I love these verses at the end. Listen to this. I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. There's something in the Bible about nighttime and morning, isn't there? Psalm, I think, where is it? Psalm 30 verse 5. There's weeping at nighttime. But joy comes in the morning. Yeah, there's something, even in the natural, I don't know about you, sometimes if I'm worried about something, 3 a.m. Ding. Or if I just wake up at 3 a.m., I'm like, okay, just give me 10 seconds and I'll work out what it is. I'll work out what it is. There's a reason I've woken up. I'm troubled by something. Trouble comes at night. It's figurative. It's, it's illustrative. Joy in the morning. David says, I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. David is basically saying this. Yeah, it's night time now, but morning's coming. And it never ends at night time for the believer. In the story never ends at night time for the believer. There's always dawn. There's always morning. There's always that moment where Matthew 28 verse 1, where Mary goes out you know, with her spices to the tomb. And, and, and it's, it's just before light, you know. And then suddenly dawn comes. He's risen. We, are, we live in the morning of the resurrection. That's why we gather and we sing like this. That's why we're so uh, confident, so thrilled, so full of uh, celebration. Because he's risen. He's done it. The morning has come. The night of the cross has passed. He dealt with our sin at the cross. And he dealt with death at the resurrection. And the morning is here for the believer. How do you get through the night? Here's how you get through the night. It's here. It's in the text. 
You've been to me a fortress. You've been a refuge in the day of my distress. We hide in him. You want to get through night? Hide in the Lord. Let him be your fortress duvet. Get underneath. Be like a child. Wait for the morning to come. Say, Lord, I'm trusting you. I'm waiting for you. You've been my fortress. Brothers and sisters, there will be distress in this life. There will be seasons where it's narrow and you're squeezed. It will happen. It's going to happen. What do you do then? I tell you, you can hide in him. You can just put yourself in him and say, Lord, I am going to sit in you because I can't deal with this. And you're going to bring me through to the morning. Amen. That's what we're told. That's what is there in there. There's something about this singing. When, he, when the songs start, there's something about songs and victory. You know, the Israelites come through the Red Sea. And then the Egyptians try and go through. The water closes in. What happens next? A song. Because there's something about songs and salvation. There's something about songs and victory where you say, I'm going to sing. And sometimes you really feel like it. And sometimes, you know that moment where you're singing, you're like, oh boy. Yeah, your heart's back there somewhere. You have to keep singing and sort of reel your heart in while you're singing until your heart catches up. That's victory. That's, that, that's reality. That is what it is. It's not all easy all the way. But I tell you what, we, many of us, we can read this song. We say, yeah, I've been here. I've known God to do this. It says here, you show me steadfast love. That word, steadfast love, hesed, it's a word for God's covenant love. And that's the thing I want to end on. We live in a society driven by emotion. Our culture is driven by emotion. How do you feel today? The gospel is built on covenant love. It's completely different. Covenant love is not how do you feel today. Covenant love is I'm his. I'm held. It's, 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 it's in blood. It's done. I'm in Christ. He loves me. And you know, God wants to so reveal his covenant love to us that we are not those kinds of people that are always looking around and thinking, does God still love me? You know, if, if, if you, you, know, you, you never want to be in a situation where you know, if my children were constantly saying, do you love me? I'd be like, wow, what have we done, what, what have we done wrong? Right? Do you know what I mean? Or what, where, did it, where, did it go, not, where did it go wrong? Aren't you secure? I expect them to be able to just come up and kiss me and be, not worry that somehow I don't love them anymore. Because we've built in, no, we, we, we're your parents. It's covenant. It's covenant. It's not just how do you feel today. It's covenant love. Do you hear that? Because I tell you what, the, the uh, culture built on emotion is pulling the foundation out from people. And everything's just about, oh, how do I feel? How do I feel? And it's all, it's, but there's no, no, one, no one's asking the questions about covenant anymore. Covenant is massive. Oh, I didn't feel good anymore. I stopped doing it. Hold, what, 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 hold on a minute. Oh, he had a bad season. We just thought, you know what, we, both, we just both need a clean break or whatever. Hold on, it's covenant. It's covenant. God loves us with the covenant love. And he will hold us with his covenant love so we can hide in him in the most trying, threatening, difficult seasons of our life. Amen. I want us to sing that wonderful song that we are the confident. It's a morning song. It's the first thing in the morning. The tombstone has been moved out of the way. He's gone. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? Jesus has risen. It's that song. If you've never known the risen Lord Jesus... Come and live in your, inside of you by his Holy Spirit. If you've never asked him to do that, you've never bowed the knee and let him be your Lord, I tell you, you can do so today. And you will not regret it. You can do so today and your life will never be the same. 
So I want to urge you, while we sing this song, call on his name. Say, Jesus, save me. Jesus, I believe you've risen from the dead. Save me. I tell you, he will. Amen? He will. Let's stand to our feet.